So today what we're going to do, we're going to look at Genesis 9, 10, 11. We're going to cover the historical period from Noah all the way to Abraham, which covers about 350 years, 11 different generations. Uh, the flood took place 1656 years after creation or using our time scale, about 2350 BC. And then from then to Abraham, we have, like I said, 350 years. And in that time, we have the earth being populated. We have the the Tower of Babel. We have the dispersion of the people, the confusion of the languages. And so it's this history that we're going to be looking about today and see how really these ancient civilizations that we study and know today came to be. Uh, rather than a piece of fiction, as many presume it to be today, we're going to see the, the historicity of this account and then its significance for us as we understand it to speak of Christ and speak of our salvation and what we are, what, how we are to see God. Okay, so as our task this morning is to do all of that, cover 350 years of history, cover three chapters of the Bible, uh, and then to talk about its application, then if you're familiar with King James, in the language of King James, I call you to gird up your loins, uh, to get prepared. If you don't know what that means, well, let's get ready, uh, because we have, have some work to do. So let's start in Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to, last week we left off in verse 17, where we see that after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, he gave him the sign of the rainbow, that he would not destroy the earth again with a worldwide flood. And then we have uh, a period of time passing before we get to verse 18. And the reason is because Noah's sons, uh, who didn't have any children on the ark uh, right after the flood, now have children. And so time has passed at this point as we begin verse 18 in chapter 9. So I'm going to read this verse 18 and 19 in chapter 9 to get us prepared for what is going to come here this morning. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so we see immediately these two verses are setting the context, an introduction to what is going to come. The dispersion of the people across the whole earth. Okay, and we're going to see that. In chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel, as God confuses languages and the people are dispersed and we see the different kingdoms of this world, the nations of this world founded. Okay, so we see that. We also see an emphasis here on Canaan. It's interesting how it mentions in verse 18 that Ham was the father of Canaan. We're going to see Canaan here a lot because later on, Canaan becomes just the epitome of wickedness and also uh, an enemy between Israel and the, and the Canaanites, and God eventually calls on Israel to remove them from their land and to destroy them. And so we see already just this foreshadowing of Canaan and the dispersion. So I'm going to continue reading now. I know Daryl just read it, but I want to read the account of, of Noah getting drunk and his sons before we reflect on this text. So look with me at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, okay, a gardener. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, again mentioning the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Okay, so as we look at this account of of Noah, we see he was a righteous man, blameless, upright. Uh, When God told him, build the ark, I'm going to do it. God told him to collect the animals, I'm going to do it. Uh, This is what I need you to do, Noah. And Noah obeyed the Lord. And now we see sinfulness of Noah. And we see him just like Adam in so many ways. Uh, Noah be given a covenant and so on, uh, falls into sin. Okay, I just want you to notice the parallels here between Noah and Adam. Noah, like Adam, was given a covenant. Not covenant called to go forth, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to subdue the earth, and to rule it righteously for God as image bearers. Okay, we see that parallel. We have Noah, also like Adam, was in a garden. When it mentions that Noah became a man of the soil, he planted a vineyard. So now Noah is living in a garden, just like Adam. And then Noah, just like Adam, sinned. And both of them, as covenant representatives, um, really demonstrate that they're, through their sin, that they're not the ones who are going to crush the head of the serpent. They're not the ones who are going to remain faithful to God and, and establish victory over sin and death. But instead, we're looking for another who would do such a thing. Now, as we consider this account, we consider Noah and his sin. We would say, what exactly is Noah's sin? Is it because he drank wine? And we recognize that's not his sin. The scripture many times uh, don't put wine in a negative light, but they always put drunkenness in a negative light. It's a sin to be drunk. And so Noah here became drunk, and we have no reason to believe that the people before the flood um, didn't uh, also had the capability to to produce wine. So it wasn't as if Noah was being ignorant and didn't know what would happen when he drank these fermented grapes. Um, but it seems that he became drunk. He knew what he was doing, and so sinned. And even to the point where he is passed out in his tent and exposed. And so Ham, one of his sons, uh, sees. His father's condition sees his father's nakedness and then goes and tells his brothers. His brothers come in and cover him up. And so when Noah finally awakes from his drunkenness and realizes what is going on, uh, he speaks such harsh words, not just to Ham, but to Ham's son, Canaan. And so why, what did, Cain, what did Ham do that was wrong? Now, there's many that would speculate in terms of what Ham did to his father, but none of those things are found in the text of Scripture. What we do know is that Ham saw his father naked And rather than covering him up, which is what his brothers did that was honorable, he actually went and told his brothers. And so why would he tell his brothers and not cover up his father? The only thing that we can, it seems likely to conclude is that Ham thought this was real fun uh, to see his father like that. And he wanted to, to have fun and at his father's expense and call his brothers, hey, come look at what dad is doing. But his sons 
were not sinful, did not enjoy the shame of their father, and so they walked backwards and covered him up. And then when Noah wakes, he says in verse 25, Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers, or a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. The question becomes, now why did Noah curse Canaan if it was Ham? You know, Canaan is not even mentioned in this story. He's, he's mentioned twice already before this as a, as a son of Ham. But why would Canaan receive a curse here if it was Ham that was sinful regarding his father? I think it's best to see in this verse um, really a prediction by Noah and not a malediction. What I mean by that is not a muttering of a curse. You know, it's translated such that we, we read it, cursed be Canaan, as if, as if Noah is uttering a curse to Canaan. But if you were to look in the, the Hebrew, read the Hebrew, there's, there's no imperative. In Hebrew, it's called a justive, an imperative form. Uh, they're all um, words that, that you could translate it better, like the, the Holman Christian Standard translate this way, Canaan will be cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. So it's not a command or uh, uttering of a curse, but rather it's a statement of prediction. It's a prophecy. When Noah sees in his grandson Canaan the same kind of wickedness that is in his son Ham, but even, even to a greater extent. And so whenever Ham does this action to him, Noah is now uttering, he's prophesying a prediction, foreshadowing the wickedness of Canaan and the fact that he will be a slave to his brothers because of his wickedness. And we see this in reality as time goes on. The Canaanites were well known for their um, terrible practices. Uh, they had sacred prostitution. So rather coming to a, a place like this to worship their false gods, they would come and they would have sex with prostitutes. And that would be a way that they would be one with their gods. Homosexuality was rampant among the Canaanites. They had various orgiastic rites with groups coming together to do these debased and profane acts. And their gods are even more wicked than the people. And not only that, not only did they perform this, this sexual immoral activities as they sought to worship their false gods, but they even give their own children up to Molech, sacrificing their own children alive as this idol of steel would be in the fire, flames burning all around it. And they've, they've actually discovered these uh, through archaeology, and they have these an idol of Molech with its arms outstretched and a big hole in its stomach. And so this thing would sit in the flames and they would take a living baby and put it on the arms of this idol, this red hot idol, and the baby would begin to, to, to slide down these arms. As you can imagine, its skin would be melting off and as it went into the flames and consumed their infants. And they would do this to, to try to appease the gods. And so the, the wickedness and the utter depravity of these people. So Noah here is, is foreshadowing the wretchedness of Canaan and his descendants, the Canaanites, what eventually is going to lead to their annihilation. It's interesting, even, even later in history, whenever uh, during the Punic Wars when, the, when Rome was fighting Hannibal, uh, he was in, in Carthage, he was a descendant of the Canaanites. And even his name, Hannibal, means the grace of Baal. Um, and so the Romans would say that um, that they would sacrifice their infants, sacrifice their children. And historians, modern historians have always thought, well, that was just propaganda because they were the winners of that war so they could say whatever they want. 
But now they've actually discovered that that was true and that the people in Carthage, the descendants of the Canaanites, would in fact sacrifice their children, even in the time of the Romans. And so Noah here is prophesying the depravity of Canaan. He's not prophesying the depravity of Ham in particular because not all of Ham's sons would be cursed like Canaan. Not all of Ham's sons would reach the depravity of Canaan. But he points out Canaan in particular as one who would be especially depraved. And Noah here doesn't just foreshadow the, the Canaanites, but also the godly line of Shem. He says in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Okay, so Shem and his descendants are going to bring forth the Messiah. And then in verse 27, he says, May God enlarge Japheth. And we're going to see, as he talks about the nations that come from Japheth, how the, the regions and the descendants of Japheth are so numerous. And again, so this prophecy is fulfilled here in the scriptures. So what we're going to do is continue forward into chapter 10. We have introduction here, the, the sons of Noah and how the nations are going to come from them, the wickedness of, of Canaan. And as we continue now through the narrative, we're going to see a genealogy of these sons in Genesis chapter 10. Now, before I read to Genesis chapter 10, before we get bogged down in some of the names, um, remember why this is written here and why we're going through it here this morning. Okay, this is God's word for us. He has something for us here in Genesis chapter 10, even these lists of names. The, the promise given back in Genesis 3.15 is that a seed would come to destroy the works of Satan. And so we've, we've been, as we've been tracing through, we've been, been asking if we put our minds back in the time period they're writing, who is going to be this seed? Who is going to be the Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ who is going to come and is going to destroy the works of Satan and the devil? And so as we see all these names written down, we see God being faithful and preserving a line who had birthed forth his son, the Messiah. I want to, before I also read in this chapter, look at verse 32 in chapter 10. Verse 32 in chapter 10, it says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on, sorry, on the earth after the flood. Okay, so this summarizes this chapter before I read through it. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 10, a list of all these nations, the descendants of Noah and his sons. And then we're going to get in Genesis chapter 11, why they were dispersed, why they formed these different nations. And it's because of the Tower of Babel. Okay, So that gives us a heads up of where we're going as the scriptures here are explaining how the peoples of the earth were dispersed and formed these different nations that we even have today. So look with me in Roman, or sorry, Genesis chapter 10. I'm going to read the entire chapter, so do your best to stay with me as we read through this list of names. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. It begins with Japheth. and says, The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riptha, and Togamah, oh, sorry, uh, Togarma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, and Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Then the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. 
The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, uh, Lehabim, Naf, Naphtuhim, Pathruzim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Castorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, uh, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then verse 21 to Shem. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, uh, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jareth, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Zephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. Okay, so as we read through that genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, we're, we're tempted just to let's just keep on moving. You know, why, why did God put all those names that are hard to say? Um, none of those names I'm sure you would use to name your children. Um, at least most of them you probably wouldn't use for name your children. Um, so why, why is that chapter there? And it's there, again, as an explanation of these founding nations. These are the patriarchs who founded nations across the world as they spread out during the uh, dispersion. You know, it mentioned here in their clans, their languages. Um, who were the heads of these nations? And in chapter 11, we have the description of how they were spread. Now, before we get to the, the reason of the dispersion, in Genesis chapter 11, I just want to make a few comments on some of these individuals mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Okay, because these 
these names, especially to those who were familiar with the geography and the nations of those days, would have readily seen that, hey, this is where Babylon came from. This is where Egypt came from. This is where the Assyrians descended from. This is, this is where we see all the, the nations and the ethnicities in our world come from. Okay, so as we, I'm going to make a few notes. Just starting with the sons of, of Japheth that we see there in verses 2 through 5. Um, it mentions Gomer as one of his sons. Now, Josephus tells us that the Greeks, um, who the Greeks call Galatians, are actually descendants of Gomer, so living up in kind of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ashkenaz, another son of Japheth. Uh, in Jeremiah 51, 27, it associates him with the region of Armenia. And in fact, Ar- Armenians still say that Ashkenaz is their, their father in terms of where they've descended from, their ancestor. Uh, late, um, later, those people from Armenia likely settled a group of them from descendants from Ashkenaz into Germany. In fact, even today, if you're a Jew from either Germany or one of those Eastern European regions, uh, you're called an Ashkenazi Jew. And so that's the descendant of these, this area of the world. Uh, Gomer's other sons, Riphath and Togomar, uh, settled in northern Turkey all along the Black Sea and the Balkans. Okay, so around the, the Aegean Sea, kind of Macedonia, Greece, etc. Magog and his descendants also settled up in the north. These Japheth's sons seem to be moving up north. Um, they were known for their cavalry. Uh, Madai is listed here. And Josephus says that uh, these are the Medes who live by the Caspian Sea. In fact, the Hebrew word for Medes in the Old Testament is Madai. Uh, it means same Medes. So this group that was closely affiliated with the Persians. Uh, Javan, again, um, settled in, in Greece. And so when the Old Testament refers to Greeks or to Greek-speaking people, it refers to them as Javan, uh, the sons of Javan. And so whether they're on Cyprus or Tarsus or Rhodes, uh, these are uh, Javan's four sons are mentioned as Greek-speaking people in these different areas. It also mentions Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. These are known from history as migrating to the north, places like Kazakhstan, Russia, and Bulgaria. And so we see here, uh, just as we see that the sons of Japheth are called in chapter 10, it says in verse 5, uh, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. They're talking here about those who would migrate around the Mediterranean Sea, around the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, uh, up into these northern regions. If you consider, you know, Babylon, the Mesopotamia, kind of central, these northern regions of Japheth, and even straight into Germany, into Europe. And so we see how Japheth was really enlarged, a large area covered by his descendants. Then in verse 6 to 20, we have a lot of discussion about Ham. Uh, Just some of his sons to highlight Cush is mentioned here, and his six sons are named. Uh, Cush in the Old Testament is associated with Ethiopia, just south of Egypt. Um, back then, Ethiopia is not the same boundaries as we know it today, but anything south of Egypt was really regarded as Ethiopia, the land of Cush. Uh, Nimrod here is given attention in verses 8 to 11, saying that he started many cities, was known as a leader, uh, as a warrior, as a hunter. And so it mentions the cities that he founded, so likely he was a leader, if not the leader. Uh, of the one calling for to build the city and the tower of Babel, which you're going to see in chapter 11. Another son of Ham mentioned is Egypt. The Hebrew name is Mizraim. You might have that in your translation. 
Uh, and then seven of Egypt's sons or Mizraim's sons are listed. And one of those sons, Kazluhim, in verse 14, uh, refers to those, he says, who are, who are where the Philistines came from. So the Philistines were not native to the area of Palestine, but rather came from northern Africa by boat. They're called in history the Sea Peoples who came to migrate to that area. So here, Genesis 11 tells about the history of the Philistines. The third son mentioned of Ham is mentioned as Put, refers to modern-day Somalia. And then his fourth and final son, Canaan, is mentioned with his 11 sons who would fill the the Palestine area, the Levant area of, of the map and would be known for their wickedness. Now, there's one interesting son that I want to point out of Canaan, of sons Canaan, says son Heth. Um, not all of them migrated to the Levant area. Uh, the Hittites were known as a Canaanite group, but coming from the north, from modern-day Turkey. And they were known as a mighty kingdom. The Bible even says that their kingdom even rivaled that of the kingdom of Egypt. And up until just recently, to, to about 100 or so years ago, um, archaeologists and people thought, well, the Hittites were just a mythical group because they had never found evidence for them outside the Bible. And so the Hittites didn't, didn't exist. Although in the late 1800s, up in northern Turkey, they discovered a large city, the capital, in fact, of the Hittite Empire. And, uh, and so they discovered this city. It exonerated the scriptures as being true, of course. And so uh, now they understand that the Hittites were, in fact, an historical people. They had iron smelting. They had chariots. And so they were formidable warriors, just like the Bible said. Now, not all the sons of Canaanites settled. Again, in that same region, we have the Hittites going. It also mentions the Sinites. And the Sinites is the modern Hebrew word for the Chinese people. And so some proposed that the Sinites were actually a group uh, descended from Ham and Canaan who migrated all the way to China. And in fact, if you look at some of the most ancient of Chinese script, they have a Chinese character for the word ship that comprises of three symbols. Uh, It has a big vessel on it, a boat. It has the number eight, and it has people, these three symbols. And so people assume and and know that this refers back to Noah's Ark, but spared eight people aboard the Ark. And so this knowledge was brought with this group of people who went to China. So after the descendants of Ham, uh, the text tells us in verse 18 and 20 that they went to their territory, their region of migration. And then lastly, it deals with Shem verses 21 down through verse 31. And this this line of Shem will eventually lead to Abraham, which is going to be the focus in the next chapters, verse 12, chapter 12 and following, and finally to Jesus Christ. Now, two individuals are, point, are named here in verse 21. It says, The Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. And as he read down, Eber was actually a, a great-grandson of, of Shem, not just a direct son. But Shem and Eber are here... Uh, highlighted because um, their namesake is really used to identify uh, Jews and Arabs. First of all, are called Semitic peoples or a Semitic language. We've heard the term anti-Semitism, which means primarily referring to Jews, uh, those who, who hate people just because of their Jewishness. Um, but that, that term, Semite, comes from the name Shem. Uh, the term Hebrew, where does Hebrew come from? Hebrew comes from the, the father Eber. And so that's why they were called Hebrews, because they were descendants of Eber. And so both Shem and Eber here are mentioned. Both of them lived long lives. In fact, Eber outlived Abraham. 
And Shem was alive during the days of Abraham and died just before Abraham died. So both of these would have been well-known patriarchs in their day. Other descendants that are uh, focused on here is the sons of Eber. He had Peleg and Joktan. And look at verse 25, what it says about Peleg. In verse 25, one of the sons of Eber was Peleg. And it says, for in his days, the earth was divided. His brother's name was Joktan. So we, we have, because of this information now, a timeline, because Genesis 11 is going to give us the dates of some of these things taking place. But we know that when the earth was divided, when the people were dispersed, it was in the days of Peleg. And so if you do the math, using the, the numbers in Genesis chapter 11, we see that the Tower of Babel happened about 100 years after the flood. And this is when the people were dispersed. Now, it mentions Joktan and his many sons. In fact, if you count them all up, you'll count 13 different sons that Joktan had. And these 13 men are the founders of a number of Arabian tribes, uh, places like Yemen, Oman, Saudi Arabia, all populated or founded by uh, Joktan and his many sons. Okay. So as we consider this, we, this, this passage of scripture is called the Table of Nations. It shows how the nations were, were formed and describes uh, the founders of these nations. And then it turns to Genesis chapter 11 to give us the reason why this took place. So I want you to look with me now in Genesis 11 as you see the reason that, that why these peoples were dispersed. So Genesis 11, we're going to read the first nine verses. It says, Now the whole earth had one language... And the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be now impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so here we have a description of the dispersion, how it came to be that these clans migrated to different areas of the known world and around, in fact, the whole world. And so what happened in this account? We have people migrating here to the land of Shinar, the land of close to, to modern day uh, or south of in modern day Iraq of Babylon and decided there to make a city and especially a tower. They wanted their tower to reach to the heavens. Uh, and you notice it says they wanted to make a name for themselves. The, the command that God had given to Adam, the God, command that God had given to Noah was to be fruitful and multiply and be image bearers of God. Uh, make God's name known among the earth. Be be servants of the living God and do things for his glory. And so now they've 
reverse that, and they want to make a name for themselves. And rather than being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth, they want to now stay together. They even say, we don't want to be dispersed. Let's, let's stay here. Let's build a tower. Let's build a city. Let's make a rallying point for humankind so we would not be dispersed. It notes in the very first verse that the people all had one language and they're all here working together in the city. And then God intervened. It says in the, in the fifth verse in chapter 11, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I think that God is using some irony here um, because you imagine these people, let's build a tower that reaches up to the heavens, you know, and, and then God in his infiniteness comes down to see it. You know, it's like he can't even see it from heaven. It's so small. You know, you guys are so puny and pathetic. I got to come down to see this little tower that you're building. And so God mentions this fact that he had come down to see what they were doing. And then he says in verse six, this is only the beginning of what they will do. He's not just here referring to their prowess at building buildings, afraid that they might build too many or too high building, but rather their sinfulness, their intent of why they were building this, to make a name for themselves, uh, to not obey God's command, to not be image bearers of God, but rather to serve themselves. And so God says, no, this is, this is the beginning of their sinfulness. And before things get worse, God brings judgment again. Not with a global flood, but with a judgment in the confusion of languages. So no longer can they speak to one another in this one language, but now their languages are confused. And because they can't understand one another, the work of the tower ceases. And in fact, they begin to spread apart from one another and migrate to other areas of the world because of the confusion of languages. So what we see really in this account is an explanation of all the nations that we just learned about in Genesis chapter 10. Why are there different nations? Why are there ethnicities? Why are there different languages? It's because of the tower of Babel. It explains so much. Consider languages for a moment of what Babel explains. There are many thousands of languages in the world, but only a few language families. You know, so many of these languages that we have today are, are related to one another and you can trace their commonality. But you get back to a certain point when you recognize, linguists recognize there are only certain few language families that are completely different from one another. That they didn't they didn't evolve from one another. There's nothing else at the bottom. Instead of having this tree of life like Darwin imagines it, we have one unifying language, you rather have this orchard, many different branches that come down and end there. So we have these base common language families. Now evolutionists attempt to explain the origin of language, of course not with the Tower of Babel, but by saying that uh, animals began to grunt and then these grunts eventually evolved into the language and the complexity that we have today. Now the only problem with that is that that explanation is just, it's merely storytelling. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Uh, there's, there's nothing that we have in the ancient languages that would argue for a more base language than that. In fact, what we do find, we look at the ancient languages of the Egyptians, of the Greeks, is that their languages are more, much more complex than our languages today. 
In fact, English is getting more and more simplified as we go on. There's less and less inflections, less and less vocabulary. Try to pick up a th- book on theology uh, from the from the time of the reformers uh, that's written in English. Uh, half the vocabulary, you're going to need a dictionary because these men had a vocabulary way beyond what we speak today. And so it's the exact opposite of the evolutionary theory. Our languages are getting more simple. And any changes and additions to our languages are a result of intelligence, not evolution. We borrow words from other languages. We form compound words. And so the language evolves, but does so through intelligent process, not some random evolutionary model. Okay, So they, they claim that we're the ones believing in stories. But in fact, as we see the founding of the nations and the, the advent of languages, that the scriptures give us a perfectly wonderful explanation that fits with the evidence. So we're not the ones here. They're just telling stories. As we consider not only languages, but you consider the founding of nations, we see these names here, the founders of nations. You recognize lands like Egypt, especially. As we consider this tower at Babel, it was likely a ziggurat, which is a four-sided pyramid structure. And we see this copied in other nations, uh, even the Mayans here in North America, the Egyptians, of course, down in Egypt. And so as the population spread, they used the same kind of architecture that they had in Babel and reproduced those in other lands. Um, Not only that, but we also have uh, some of these ancestors, especially Noah and his sons, uh, living for many hundreds of years. Okay, It took time after the flood as people separated where the gene pool got to the extent where people weren't living as long as they were before the flood or even shortly after the flood. And so Eber and Shem were people who lived and outlived Abraham. Shem almost outlived him, but Eber outlived Abraham. So he lived to see 11 generations of his descendants. And you can imagine these these fathers who also went to and settled in Greek, these sons of Javanus, they lived for many, many different generations. And so many of the names that are the sons of Javan and, and his offspring are names that the Greeks have used to name their gods. Because these were men who lived for so many generations that they were deified in their day. And so again, the explanation of these pagan religions are explained because of the events here in Genesis 10 and 11. So it fits with the founding of these nations and even how these nations came to deify these patriarchs. Not only does it explain languages, not only does it explain the origin of these nations, it explains the ethnicities that we see in the world today. Now, people use the term race, but there's only one race, the human race. We see different ethnicities, different characteristics, where we we look different, we have a different language, we have different skin color, hair type, eye shape, eye color. But we're all human. There's no problem for any of us as human beings to have offspring with other humans. Our genetics are the same, even though some of these characteristics may 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 differ. And so we see the explanation of how the different ethnicities developed whenever we have a small population of people now migrating away and and isolating themselves. And so would lock in certain character traits like hair color, skin color, and eye shape. If you think about skin color just for a second, skin color is simply um, 
it has to do with, with melanin that's in our body, and it, it, that's determined by our genes, and it's, it's a one pigment that we all have. So whether you're black or white or anything in between, uh, any color that you are, it's all because of this one pigment, melanin, and our, and our genetics tell us how much of that pigment is there, which gives us a skin color. And so it has nothing to do with anything beyond just that simple pigment. So if, if, a, if a people migrate, and if they have a dominant gene of a certain kind of that pigment, not a kind of pigment, but just a quality or amount of that pigment, that population group is going to um, um, have that certain characteristic because isolated from the others. Now, one couple made headlines in 2005. Both of these parents had white uh, British mothers and had black Jamaican fathers. And so they looked... um, you know, you, you, could, you can imagine what they look like, you know, darker skin, you know, black, uh, curly hair. And so they got together, they married, and they had twins. And they had two, two little girls in 2005. One was blonde uh, with this white, fair skin, and the other black with, with dark, curly hair. And so you couldn't imagine that these two were sisters. That they, their faces looked similar, but their skin color and the hair color, everything was completely different. And so what we see that as ethnicities come together, the different distinctions that we see today are actually reversed as instead of having isolation coming together. And so we see how the different ethnicities arose because of the Tower of Babel. So again, the explanation of Scripture explains what we see today in our experience. Again, to show us the truthfulness of God's Word. And there's a few objections that people mention against this account that I want to mention briefly. Some people say, well, this, this account here of the Tower of Babel can't be historical because we all know that Egypt was founded around 3200 BC. And according to the biblical timeline, that's before the flood. And, and their kings just kept on living right through the flood. And the pyramids are still there. They weren't, they weren't damaged or destroyed. And so they say, obviously the Bible is false. And so what do we do with that common objection? Well, this is where people pick and choose what information they rely on. Um, And the age of Egypt is said to be authoritative. And of course, the Bible is taken to be faulty on this. But many Egyptologists today are convinced that the dating schemes that they use for Egypt are are in fact wrong. Uh, That the king's list that we have from the Egyptian kings are not all sequentially, if you add them all up, all in different time periods, but many of them we have evidence for they overlapped. They actually were, were ruling in different parts of Egypt concurrently, which would throw all your timeline right off. Um, if you look at other records that we have, we have one record, a Byzantine chronicler called Constantinius Manassas. He gives the length of the Egyptian state of 1,663 years. And if you count backwards from when they were defeated by the Persian Persians in 526 BC, you do the math, you get 2188 BC, which equals 60 years after the birth of Peleg. And then an Egyptian historian, Manithello, okay, someone from Egypt in the third century BC, he records of the Tower of Babel, and he says that dispersion happened five years after the birth of Peleg. Even their own historians would affirm hear the biblical account about their origins. You also have when Alexander the Great, when he conquered Babylon in 331 BC, he received from them 1,903 years of astronomical observations, 
which they said goes back to the founding of Babylon. If you do the math again, would place the founding of Babylon at 2,234 B.C., when Peleg was 13 years old. And so Babylon was founded first, and then a farther region down in Egypt was founded years later. You have Greece, you have, the, you have Eusebius, the 4th century historian. He says that the founding of Greece was 160 years after the birth of Peleg. And so again, Greece being even farther away, it took longer for them to migrate and to establish a city there. And archaeology also confirms the details about this migration from Babylon to the other regions of the earth. They just get the timeline way off. And so rather than believing um, a, a secular timeline of these events, just remember that they believe that our earth is four and a half billion years old. Remember that they believe that our universe is 14 billion years old and that it is here because of an explosion of nothing that produced everything you see. And so that is the, that is the worldview that they're using to try to discredit the Bible. And so let's remember that God's word stands authoritative and it's accurate and it affirms the real dates of the founding of these nations. One last objection that I want to turn to before we um, turn to some of the significance of these texts is what about cavemen? People say they dug up bones of cavemen, Neanderthals. Uh, doesn't this show that the biblical account is is false because these cavemen apparently lived, you know, 40,000, 60,000, even, even longer years ago, way before the Bible even says things were created. Now, it's interesting if, if some of you who are older have book about, books about the Neanderthal, uh, perhaps from the 70s or 80s, and you look at a picture of what people proposed the Neanderthal looked like. Uh, they were hunched over cavemen with, with hair all over the place, with long, scraggly hair. Uh, and if you look at a modern conception of the Neanderthal, they look just like people. And the reason is because the more they find out about this Neanderthal man, these, these creatures that lived in, in, the, in, the, in, in Europe, in that region there, is that um, they find out more and more that these were intelligent people. And in fact, they discovered recently that it turns out that Neanderthal man actually breeded with human beings. And so it shouldn't surprise us because how can any other species breed with another species unless they are the same species. And so Neanderthal were human beings. Uh, and it's not a revelation to us to recognize that Neanderthals were human beings. And so how do we fit them into the timeline given to us in the scriptures? Well, just because a species is, or a, a group of people is primitive doesn't mean that they are ancient. Okay, It's best to see the Neanderthals as a, as a family or group of people that dispersed after Babel and rather than building houses, they lived a primitive life uh, using the, the shelter that was provided in caves and other things that they found around them. Um, primitive only means older in an evolutionary worldview. Okay, Primitive only means older in an evolutionary worldview. Imagine what an evolutionist would do if they dug in the ground and they, and they found uh, an old piece of farm machinery that the Amish would use today. And imagine if they also dug in the ground and they found a tractor with a GPS in it. Uh, both those things are used today. The, the Amish are not any less of a person or any less um, uh, of a human being because they use more primitive tools than the guys who run the big tractors on the farm next door. Okay, And so by trying to, only through an evolutionary worldview, do they get the dates of those people we call the Neanderthals completely wrong. But rather, they fit in perfectly with the Bible storyline here. Now, 
I want to continue reading the rest of Genesis chapter 11 to get to Abraham. Okay, so we see the many nations that came from Noah and his ascendants. We see the reason why they were dispersed, the origin of, of language, of nations, of ethnicities. And now we're going to finish this account as we get to Abraham. So Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to the end of the chapter. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Surig. And Ryu lived after he fathered Surig 207 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Surig had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and, Is- and Iscah, um, the daughter, sorry, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So as we read the end of Genesis chapter 11, we get the timeline of this godly line leading all the way to Abraham. And then from Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis, we have Abraham and his family. Now, after the judgment of the Tower of Babel, we still wait for this promised Messiah until we have the next of these patriarchs, the next one who is going to be given a covenant. Covenant was given to Noah. Covenant was given to, uh, sorry, to Adam, then to Noah. And then a covenant is going to be given to Abraham as we continue to wait for the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, as we cover these chapters, we've covered many decades, centuries of history. See the birth of nations, of language, of ethnicities. Now, how does this have a bearing on us today? How is this more than just some historical tidbits or facts. For one, as I've attempted to show, it gives us a confidence of the authority of Scripture that the Scripture's explanation of history is accurate. It fits with what we know from other writings and archaeology and is continually being exonerated by new discoveries and evidence from the ancient world. 
And so for one, we can, we can trust the authority of God's word on all of it, especially these first 11 chapters of Genesis, that when God speaks, it is truthful. But this passage is about more than that. It's not just um, about trusting the authority of God's word. It's not just about the history of nations, but it's really the history of this line of promise, continuing this promise of Genesis 3.15, that God is going to bring a promised offspring. And so these passages really teach us here about the faithfulness of God. We see Adam sin, but yet God is, is faithful and he raises up Noah. And even though the world has reached such wickedness and depravity, God's faithfulness is seen in sparing Noah and, and being merciful to him and his family and in preserving humanity and preserving that godly line to bring the Messiah to do away with sin. And then we see Noah's sin, but yet God is still faithful in that one of his sons, Shem, God is going to choose to be, again, the ancestor of this godly line in both Shem and Eber, and then all the way down to Abraham. And so we see God's faithfulness eventually delivering us to that promised one, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see this godly line traced through these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, not because these individuals were any better than anybody else. They're still sinners. But rather because of God's choice in preserving this line that was going to bring forth Jesus Christ. Now, this text is even more than that. It's, it's not just about trusting the truthfulness of God's word. It's not just about this line of promise that points to Christ, but rather it's a, a foreshadowing of Christ's redemption. Okay, we saw how the flood was a foreshadowing of Christ's salvation. We see here in the Tower of Babel a foreshadowing of Christ's redemption, of what he is going to accomplish when he returns. We see God's judgment upon the people in confusing the languages and of causing the nations to spread out. And what we know from the scripture is that when Christ returns, he is going to unite us such that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation, this whole universe, this whole earth, who will be singing the praises of God, who will be saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who shed his blood to redeem out of these tribes and clans and peoples and nations, a people for himself. And so in Christ, we have a return to this unity that we had before the Tower of Babel. So these first chapters of the Bible described how the nations were spread because of human sin. The final chapters of the Bible are going to describe how the nations are united because of Christ's work and because his rule as the king, this promised one who is to come, who is going to bring God's righteousness. Not only do we see unity happening because of Christ, but we also see that in Christ there is no room for racism um, the scriptures are clear that whether Jew or Greek, barbarian, Scythian, uh, whether English or Filipino, we, we are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no ethnic divide. There's no male or female in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all united together. You know, there, there's a great emphasis in our world today, this, this doctrine of humanism, which wants to see unity, which wants to see globalization. But they're going about it all wrong and they're going about it the same way they did in, 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 in Babel, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to make us the center, and they're going to fail. And in fact, what we see is the more that the, the humanist agenda is seeking to have uh, the inclusion of all races and ethnicities, 
the more we see the racial tensions actually increase in our nations. The more we see racial tensions between black and white actually increase as they're trying to promote their humanist ideals. There's only one Savior, and it's not us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will bring true unity to all the different ethnicities and nations when He returns and establishes a new heaven and a new Jerusalem. And so we are now called to flee from those sins of racism. We're called now to um, make a name not for ourselves, but rather to make a name for Christ. Okay, so that's what we realize here from this text. Now, we receive our, our citizenship, we receive our unity, not because we've uh, taken it upon ourselves to try to create that unity, but we've come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come here in this room uh, as brothers and sisters, those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we have our unity, not because we've decided to try to overlook or bear with one another, but because we have a common salvation in Jesus Christ. We have a common assurance that when he came and died and rose again, he did so for my sin. He did so for your sin. And through faith, we can have that promised forgiveness so we can have the eternal life. And so it's because of that common truth, that common love for Lord Jesus Christ that we have true unity here together. Now, as we end this morning, I want to end with a quote from the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. This chapter deals with Abel and with some of the things that happened in the book of Genesis and serves to be a warning for us to learn from it. And so I want to end by reading Hebrews 10, 25 to 29. It says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, things of this world, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. God, we covered a a lot of scripture here this morning, a lot of history. And I pray that we would remember how this text in the dispersion of the nation points forward to the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That not even language will be a barrier in your kingdom. Uh, Ethnicities, nations will not be a barrier. We're all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all justified by faith not because of our heritage, not because of who our parents are, not because of the groups we associated with or the skin color that we have, but we are saved. We are forgiven because of faith alone in Christ alone. I pray that we would heed the warnings of this verse in Hebrews, these verses in Hebrews, that we would cling to this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We would not be seeking to build towers and monuments for ourselves here in this world, recognizing that this is all going to be destroyed. This is all going to be removed. So may we live for you, to love you, to worship you, to adore you, to revere you, and to walk in holiness. I ask you to help us to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.